0: And we ducked inside and sat down and the waitress said, welcome to Zakaya 10. It's Tuesday, so it's 50% off a bottle of shochu. And I said, what's shochu? And she said, it's like Japanese vodka. And that's an absolutely terrible way to introduce the drink. But it was revelatory. We ordered a bottle of Ichiko, which is the, the best-selling barley shochu in Japan. And it's just sent me down a rabbit hole that led me to live in Japan.
1: From the American Craft Spirits Association and Craft Spirits Magazine, this is the Craft Spirits Podcast. I'm John Page, and today on the program, A Taste of Japan. Our guests are Christopher Pellegrini and Stephen Lyman of Honkaku Spirits, which is devoted to bringing intensely artisanal Japanese spirits to discerning American customers with a particular focus on koji-based spirits. Christopher is Honkaku's founder, Stephen is their ambassador, and both of them are writers. Christopher published the first-ever English-language guide to Sochu and alamari, the Shochu Handbook. He also contributed to the Oxford Companion to Spirits and Cocktails. Stephen is the author of the James Beard Award-nominated The Complete Guide to Japanese Drinks. Recently, they joined Editor-in-Chief Jeff Cialetti at the Embassy of Japan in Washington, D.C. to talk about their love of shochu, the origins of honkaku, and more. Let's listen now to that conversation. Let's talk a little about each of you,
2: how you each got into shochu, um, how long each of you have been living in Japan. I know, Stephen, you've been in, what, like four years full-time now or something? and But Christopher, you've been there longer, so... Uh, We'll start with you, Stephen, because you're the closest to me.
0: <laughs> Great. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, happy to be on the show, Stephen Lyman. I'm actually, I've been in Japan for j- going on three years now. Oh, no, three years. But I was spending quite a bit of time in Japan every year uh, visiting distilleries, working in a distillery, and, and uh, doing research for my book uh, for several years before uh, moving there full time. And I'm now based in Fukuoka which is uh, the largest city in southern Japan on the island of Kyushu, about a million and a half people, really uh, idyllic place to live, uh, both as far as uh, food culture and the climate and everything else. I'm uh, very happy to be there. Uh, but my shochu journey really began in a New York City izakaya in late 2007, when I uh, was out drinking with friends. We'd had a nice tapas dinner in the Chelsea neighborhood, and one of the guys was visiting from New York, uh, sorry, one of the guys was visiting from Washington, D.C., which is actually where we are now, and he was German, and he said, let's have another drink after we'd had several bottles of wine and lots of great tapas food, and so none of us knew the neighborhood, and there was a Japanese bar next door called Izakaya Ten, and we ducked inside and sat down, and the waitress said, welcome to Izakaya Ten. It's Tuesday, so it's, 50% off a bottle of shochu. And I said, what's shochu? And she said, it's like Japanese vodka. And that's an absolutely terrible way to introduce the drink. But it was revelatory. We ordered a bottle of Ichiko, which is the best-selling barley shochu in Japan. And it's just sent me down a rabbit hole that led me to live in Japan. It's been quite a journey. I'll let Christopher now tell his story a little bit.
3: Thank you. Uh, Christopher Pellegrini sitting in the comfy chair right next to Steven and Jeff. And I have been in Japan for going on 19, almost 19 full years now and lived in Tokyo the in, entire time that I've been in Japan. Although I do I do spend a lot of time headed down to both Okinawa and Kyushu Island where most of the, well, pretty much 99% of the good shoju is made in Japan. And... I'm from a beer background. I used to brew for a small place up in Middlebury, Middlebury, Vermont called Otter Creek. And that turned me into quite the underage beer snob. And when I came to Japan, I quickly recognized that shochu had a lot of the diversity that is apparent in craft beer. And I quickly fell in love with the category. I was introduced to it quite randomly by... Um, a bartender, and it has been an absolute joy to continue to study, explore, learn, and also evangelize for this category, which is just one of the last big things that Japan has held on to and not really let spread yet, but we're hoping to change that.
2: So how did you two initially connect? Um just it was just a
0: love of shochu i guess but um how and where did that happen so i guess i'll take that one uh since i was the one playing hard to get uh i was visiting japan i think around 2010 and this uh strange long-haired sean white look-alike on twitter reached out to me and and asked uh if he, he realized i was in tokyo and he asked if i'd like to meet up for a drink he was wearing a yellow puffy vest in his profile picture um, with long flowing locks. And as a, as a buttoned-up uh, uh, associate professor at Cornell University, I wasn't sure that I should be associating with such types. <laughs> and uh, I demurred, and I said, sorry, I've, you know, I've got a lot of, lot of friends to see. I've, I'm busy. And then my last night in Tokyo, I was out with uh, Aya, of Shochu and Tapas Aya, formerly Hachan Bar, who's uh, an amazing bartender who's from Tokyo. And she took me to a bunch of her favorite spots. And about 3 in the morning, she suddenly piled into a taxi and said, I'm going home, I'm tired. And uh, my flight was scheduled for 6.50 a.m. on American Airlines out of Haneda, and I woke up at 7.30. And I had missed my flight. And When you miss an international flight, the ticket's gone. This is just after New Year's. Uh, And I um, had to use miles to fly back, but I couldn't get on a flight until the next day. And once I'd recovered from my stupendous hangover, I uh, reached out to Christopher on Twitter and
3: uh, told him that turns out I'm available to go out for drinks. So just to fill in some of the details on the visual there, my former Twitter profile picture had me with very long locks. I think I was jumping in the air. So they were in in free flight and i was dressed a lot like marty mcfly in back to the future so that big puffy vest and it was a sight i'm sure i probably made a lot of people nervous not just cornell professors but uh the good news is that he pinged me when i was on my way home from work and i was also teaching at a university at the time and i was like okay great turned right back around got on the train went back into the city and took him to one of my favorite shochu bars with good food that's right in Shinjuku, um, one of the easiest spots to reach in in downtown Tokyo, and we had a great time. It turns out that we basically are kind of the same person in in terms of our interests, in terms of our sensibilities, certainly in terms of our shochu uh, fanaticism. Um, We're both into baseball, we both love movies, and and just on and on and on, so became fast friends and allies, and that was the beginning of all sorts of shenanigans.
2: And so, speaking of shenanigans, um, how did Honkaku come to be um, your new company? I mean, you've been operating for over a year now, right, officially? um and tell us about what you're doing um let's talk about takamine a little bit and just uh the sorts of shochu that you're bringing to the states i mean shochu has uh you know a a niche presence here um what uh what are you hoping to accomplish through your company
0: yeah i guess i'll start since it really did uh come through me to some degree I mean Christopher and I had talked a while before about potentially this is when I was living in New York about him setting up an export company in Japan and me setting up an import company in the states and I had had any number of people come to me over the years asking if I was interested in doing that so and I always just sort of said I have a career I, I love shochu and I'll do anything I can to promote it but I don't not really interested in becoming an importer and and then I think Christopher maybe can talk about his his struggles in trying to become an exporter, uh, but eventually uh, we were approached with essentially an offer we couldn't refuse, and uh, I I agreed to serve as the company's ambassador um, rather than taking a full time role since I still do have a career, and Christopher decided to change careers and and is now doing this full time, which to his credit it's something that's much needed and. I think he's done a wonderful job putting the company together and getting things moving and he's a natural salesman. So it makes sense that he's the one who's taking the lead on all of this. Um, As far as Honkaku Spirits and what it's become is really, this is, these are essentially our friends. These are distilleries that we have long relationships with. They're small family run businesses. They essentially have no ability to export. Uh, They wouldn't know where to begin. And, They make very limited quantities and they're willing to take a chance on us and and uh sell us a little bit and we're not bringing in anything in large quantities and just trying to bring over what we consider the best of the best in 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 shochu and awamori and maybe we'll have christopher speak to his thoughts about the company so far and then we can jump into takamine after that
3: so to steven's point about the small or micro nature of many of these distilleries we've really tried to just make it so that they can't say no now they are our friends so a lot of them do want to help us in this new venture but they also as steven said they 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 don't know how to put together the proper invoices and packaging slips and and how to wrap stuff appropriately for export and just the whole regulatory side of things is very daunting especially in terms of registering products uh, in, in markets outside of Japan. So what we tried to do with Honkaku Spirits is become basically what is a full-service import, export, whatever you want to call it, uh, trade company. And what we do is we do all the design, all the packaging, all of the bottle sourcing, cap sourcing, outer shipper, carton sourcing, the whole nine yards, send it to the distillery, and we just say, hey, fill it, tell, tell us when you're done, and then we'll come pick it up. And so in that sense, it was. I think it was a big relief for a, a lot of the makers that are, have chosen to work with us or have agreed to work with us, and and that made them feel much more confident that we were going to take care of the process from start to finish, and that's something that we really try to do. We try to stay in constant communication with them, sending them pictures of our exploits over here in the States, uh, pictures of their bottles on, on shelves in different bottle shops across the United States. And they are getting very excited about this because it's a world that was completely off limits to them until until we put our nickel down, as Steven often likes to say.
2: So you're like art Vandalay, you're an importer exporter. Is that sorry. <laughs> So you just said importer exporter. That's that's always what okay. goes to my <laughs> So uh Takamine, that's um in a lot of ways uh it's a good bridge for people, especially people in the whiskey world, to shochu because it is a Koji whiskey, which is something that's just not done, so uh, tell us about that and, you know, tell us a little bit of the history, where the name came from, and, and you know, who Takamini was and, and all that, so.
0: Sure. Uh, obviously, when we're starting a boutique shochu import company here in the States, basically, uh, as Christopher is fond of saying, shochu is Japan's best-kept secret. And recently, we've begun saying that we believe that shochu and awamori are essentially the last great spirits traditions that are left undiscovered in the U.S. Uh, the fact that they come from Japan, they're traditionally made uh, by craftsmen; they're they're really special drinks. But we have such a steep hill to climb as far as uh, trade education, consumer education, and then getting people to actually want to drink these in preference of other drinks, or in complement with other drinks. And so. We really needed something that we were confident would sell. Uh, would be an easier sell into many more uh, shops and bars and restaurants than than these obscure categories. And so fortunately, I've been friends with Michiaki Shinozaki for over a decade. He was actually the first person to ever ask me to start an import company. And his family distillery, the Shinozaki distillery in Fukuoka, had been laying down casks of double-distilled 100% barley koji-fermented distillate. And because it had gotten too dark and because it was double-distilled, it no longer qualified as shochu, but it was excluded from the Japanese domestic market. So he needed an export market for this distillate and America with with its wild wild west whis- whiskey red regulations uh, was a perfect place for it because essentially here if it's made from grain and it's distilled and it's aged in oak it's a whiskey and there's no regulations around need the need to use malted grains or you know we're, it's not a bu- it's not a bourbon there's no corn in the mash bill it's 100 percent barley so we decided that we would try to create koji whiskey as a category and what's so interesting about that to us is in research for my book, we discovered that Jokichi Takamine was a Japanese chemist who was born actually in 1854, the year that Commodore Perry sa- sailed into uh, Tokyo Bay and opened the country at gunpoint. Uh, he was born into a sake-making family. He was one of the members of the first graduating class of the Tokyo University School of Engineering. Tokyo University is now one of the finest institutions of higher learning in Asia. And he was in a delegation in, uh, sent to New Orleans for the New Orleans World's Fair in 1885, where he met and fell in love with a young heiress. And he had no prospects. He had no money. So he went back to Japan and made his first fortune in phosphate mining. Came back in 1887 uh, and married Caroline Hitch. They moved back to Japan where they started their family, and in 1890, her mother, uh, his mother-in-law, sent a telegram and said, come to Chicago. We have a business opportunity for you. So the family left Tokyo, moved to Chicago in 1890, and he started the Takamine Ferment Company, and he quickly uh, submitted a patent for a maltless whiskey-making process, which was using koji, which he had learned from his sake-making family, and... They began experimenting at the uh, Manhattan distillery in Peoria, Illinois. Uh, And he licensed the patent to the Illinois Whiskey Trust, which was making 95% of whiskey and 80% of distilled alcohols in America at the time. And two weeks after the maltless whiskey process was announced in the Chicago Tribune, there was a mysterious fire in the Manhattan distillery, destroying the laboratory where the experiments were taking place. And they had to rebuild and finally, in 1894, December 1894, they began making maltless whiskey at the Manhattan Distillery, which was the largest distillery in America at the time. Unfortunately, due to the Sherman Act, the Illinois state government, uh, the state's attorney's office, decided to break up the Illinois Whiskey Trust in February 1891, uh, 1895. So th- th- three months after they began making the koji f- fermented whiskey using the Takamine process, uh, the distillery was shuttered. It was sold to other interests at auction, and the new owners decided to go back to malting. And so the Takamine whiskey was actually never sold to the public. Uh, Jokichi did fine. He moved to New York City, and he started doing other business. He made a digestive aid called diastase, which is a uh, koji-based stomach aid. You get a little stomach upset, koji can break those, uh, break down whatever's ailing you and he then isolated adrenaline it was actually the first human hormone to ever be isolated in human history and of course adrenaline saved millions of lives since then as a medical treatment and he became very very wealthy and ended up donating the cherry blossom trees to washington dc because he was really committed to american japanese relations right up until his death in 1922 and so having this story and this background and realizing that there's this koji whiskey laid down in in fukuoka uh, we saw the opportunity. Uh, so we were working with the Shinozaki family, they received permission from Takamine's family trust to use his name. And it's the first time they've ever allowed his name to be used on a commercial product uh, since his passing in 1922. Uh, so, and it doesn't express like any Japanese whiskey out there because of the koji fermentation. And I think also because it's 90% virgin oak, which most Japanese whiskey is, is uh, aged in, in reused uh, barrels. So it's got a really, really unique expression. Maybe I'll let Christopher talk a little bit more about how it drinks and what it's like and that sort of thing.
3: So just to summarize what Stephen was talking about, and I think this is a key point, there was a Japanese citizen making whiskey 25 years before Taketsuru went to Scotland, right? 25 years before that happened, Dr. Takamine was making koji whiskey in the United States, in, in Illinois. And if it wasn't for him getting screwed by well they burned him down they burnt his lab down at one point and then the legislators shut them down so a couple of uh big old middle fingers from the power players in illinois but if that had not happened steven said i mean this was 95 percent of whiskey was being made by the illinois whiskey trust at that time koji whiskey would have been an american tradition Probably all, all bourbon would have been made with koji if they had really found, I think that what was it was definitely in the teens in terms of the cost savings and the efficiencies that koji allowed. Uh, so there was a lot of money to be made from that. So it's just, it's remarkable to us and what's even more remarkable and kind of disappointing is how Dr. Takamine is not well known in Japan. Um, I think because he did his best work in the United States he just doesn't get the love that we really felt feel that he deserves and so it's been really fun to see people react so positively to a completely maltless whiskey yes made in Japan this was not made in Illinois but that was inspired by an American experiment that just uh, didn't quite find its feet and hopefully in the future people here will start copying the the mash bill, and we can bring it all back to Japan, and he can have his home con- coming finally. But the to go back to what Jeff, you said earlier about the bridge, maybe, mm-hmm. I, think, I think that's a great way to put it in a couple of different, um, from a couple of different angles. Number one, the flavor profile of Takamine Koji Whiskey is kind of a bridge between something that's a little bit more Japanese whiskey and as we know Japanese whiskey is definitely inspired by the Scotch tradition but then also something that it's a bridge to the other side which is something a little bit more bourbon like and we've had a lot of people say that it tastes a lot like a weeded bourbon it's not a bourbon it's not a Japanese whiskey it's somewhere in the in the middle and it's been well we we sold out of it so I guess it's doing okay another way that it's a bridge and, and I think this is what you were talking about before, Jeff, is that it does unlock the door or reduce the height of the barrier to having conversations about other beverage alcohol products that are made from koji, which is the, the mold that is absolutely necessary in order to make all fermented things or almost all fermented things in Japan. So we're talking about miso, we're talking about soy sauce, we're talking, of course, sake and shoju, awamori, mirin, koji whiskey, and many other things. It really does, this koji whiskey allows us to start that conversation very um, organically rather than starting with koji. People naturally ask the question, okay, wait, this is a koji fermentation, which means what? And that's a fascinating conversation. When you try to get a beer brewer to understand that there is no boil, there's no wort, there's no mash tun. There's no lotter tun. They're like, wait, what? You know, it's just a, it's, and the whiskey folks too, they're like, I don't get it. How does that work? And it's, it's, uh, you know, it's the magic of koji.
2: And, you know, it, it, it's not just a means of, you know, creating the enzymes that you need to break down the, the starches and the fermentable sugars. It's also, it imparts a lot of character too. And it, it is, it is the heart and soul of shochu it's the heart and soul of sake um what do you think it's going to take for um you know even producers here in the united states to sort of embrace it i mean not necessarily i mean we've already got a couple people making shochu i mean you can literally count them on one hand you can count them on one hand with several fingers blown off you know that's basically how many people are making shochu in the United States right now but I mean it does you know—you can experiment with a lot of other beverages is it just a matter of um, getting the labs on board here so people aren't always having to import it from Japan and get them to propagate it and that sort of thing I mean what are your thoughts there?
0: That's a, that's a great question I think uh, so Koji production is an entire industry in Japan uh, sake and shochu makers do not make their own koji. They buy uh, commercially available koji from, uh, from koji manufacturers, and, and that's what's used uh, ubiquitously in the industry. We don't have that here. So I think for the time being, koji probably will be an imported product that's used by brewers and distillers in the States, and I'm not sure when there will be enough demand to actually sustain a business domestically. Uh, but right now, the koji that's imported is quite piecemeal, it's being shipped directly from Japan to different brewers and distillers. So it would be nice if there was an import company that could sort of be the go-to source uh, for all brewers and distillers to get their koji. So maybe that's somebody else's new business idea. Uh, I don't think we have time for it. But um, w- what I do think is if you're interested, if you're a uh, a brewer distiller, there are a number of sake breweries uh, making premium sake here in the States, which uh, they're now familiar with using koji. Uh We're good friends with the folks at Brooklyn Kura, uh, and they do a great job making handmade koji. And so if you need to learn, they're always happy to help. Uh, Brandon, the master brewer there, comes from a beer-making background, and as we know, uh, craft beer brewers are very collaborative. Brandon is happy to talk to people about it and teach people what he's learned about how to use koji. And then if you're wanting to make a spirit, if you distill sake, if you make sake and you distill it, that's a rice shochu, essentially. So you're pretty close. Once you know how to make sake, you're pretty close to shochu, and then it's just a matter of figuring out how to use the other substrates if you wanted to make sweet potato or barley or or regular potatoes or whatever other style of shochu you're interested in producing Uh, once you've got that koji fermentation going it's it's not that great a leap to to working with other substrates so i do think that opportunity exists i'm sure the other shochu makers in the states uh, which there are very few uh, would also be happy to share their knowledge and, and help grow this category uh, domestically, so it's a really interesting idea. Christopher might have a different perspective as a former commercial brewer.
3: Actually, I don't really, but um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think you're you're absolutely correct that for a long time, for the for the near and medium term, it's going to be mostly those experts in Japan continuing to produce koji commercially until somebody can do it wild over here. And by wild, I mean there are wild fermentations in many shochu distilleries in Japan. Um, Many times the koji does live in the space. So to to a certain extent, you're getting a a wild inoculation of the product. And there's a lot of open fermentations in the shochu world that makes that possible. So it's very much a part of the microbiome of of individual distilleries, the people that bring their own life experiences in there to make the product. That's all part of it. You get you know, you wash the walls or you change the, the people working in, in the distillery and you have a different product. Um, I don't know how how freewheeling people will be in the States with that. I mean, obviously, there are no super traditional uh, distilleries or breweries that look exactly like what you would find in Japan. And certainly no no distilleries with mud walls, I think, which is something we've seen occasionally and tend to harbor... Uh, microbes very happily but the the attention to koji in the united states is growing and is undeniable and unavoidable i mean just earlier this year steven was a one of the speakers one of the featured people in the in koji kong which was a multi-week koji extravaganza basically online you had experts chefs um, beverage type people from all over the world who were doing online sessions and helping to fill in the gaps and and find the synergies between all of the world's different koji fermentation traditions and and the traditions are alive and well in in the United States you've got chefs all over the place that are experimenting with it and you've got people at home cooking with it so I think the future is very bright for koji ferments and um, you know Takamine and the rest of our our portfolio and anyone else who decides to inhabit the space similarly will benefit from that.
0: Yeah. If I can just follow up a little bit on, on that about uh, Koji. I think, you know, for a lot of people during the pandemic, there was, I saw an awful lot of sourdough starters and and mothers, you know, everybody was either pickling or making sourdough. The cool kids are actually playing around with Koji. There was a lot of home fermentation happening with Koji and it was, it was enlightening with, uh, the talks at KojiCon and the discussion that was happening around it, all of the different uh, ways that people were using this, and that's that's really interesting. I think f- uh, it, it surprised Japanese people because koji is used in a certain way in Japan, and there are kind of traditions and rules around it. And in the states, anything goes. And this all this in this entire fascination with koji among among chefs seems to have started with Jerry, Jeremy Umansky. In, in Cleveland, who was tasked with, he was a a, a a sous chef, and he was tasked with by his chef de cuisine to make house-made miso. So miso is made with koji. So Jeremy learned all about koji. And then he accidentally spilled some on some, without realizing it, on some scallops that were in the same fridge. And when they came back from a couple of days off, the scallops had this mold bloom on them. And because you don't really waste food in a commercial kitchen, they decided to make that the staff meal. And apparently these scallops were unbelievably good. Mm. They had fermented in a way that you actually ended up with this really rich mushroom flavor Mm. with the scallop flavor. And it just became this really, really interesting thing to eat. And that just sent him down a rabbit hole that's changed his life. And I think a lot of other people's lives as he and... uh, Uh, His co-author wrote uh, Koji Alchemy, and then that that now has led to KojiCon, and I'm sure it was just the first of many of these Koji conferences that are going to continue throughout the U.S. and probably elsewhere.
2: And I I wanted to kind of get a little bit into some of the other shochu in your portfolio. We talked a great deal about Takamine, the whiskey. Now let's talk about some some of the ones we tasted here today. Um, So let's, you know... what would be your sort of elevator pitch on each of those?
3: As Stephen said before, we're basically bringing in a bunch of shochu uh, skews that are made by our friends. So please understand that everything I'm about to say is incredibly biased. Um, but I guess we'll start with the one that I often start tastings with. It's it's a roasted barley shochu called Mugi Hoka. 25% ABV made in Kagoshima Prefecture, which happens to be ground zero for basically the sweet potato shochu industry. But they made this really, really rich coffee forward, a lot of cacao nib, um, five-year aged barley shochu that has just been absolutely hitting it out of the park for us. And it's something that we drink at home all the time. Stephen tends to you know the last cup of coffee in the pot. He'll pour, he'll make iced coffee with that in the afternoon, and then pour some of the mugi hokka in there with a little bit of sparkling water. It's a really nice afternoon or brunch style spritzer. Um, but that's that's one that I often start tastings with because it's a real eye opener. And the thing that's important to remember about all honkaku shochu or authentic shochu is that it's made in a pot still. It's distilled once. And therefore, it has a lower ABV than a lot of world spirits, but it also has a hell of a lot more flavor and aroma. So it can be very, very enjoyable to stick your nose in the glass and and discover what's going on. Then we have a a trio of products, one rice, one barley, one sweet potato, all from the Furusawa distillery in Nichinan, Miyazaki, a little bit to the north of where Mugi Hokka is made. They're all 35% ABV, intensely old school, made in a distillery that looks like it was ripped out of Kyoto in the, in the ancient times. And the family home is adjacent to it, is attached to the distillery. The, the, the toji right now, the master brewer distiller, uh, Furusawa, uh, Masako Furusawa, she has, was born there and has never lived more than a couple sliding doors away from the still it's just they they really just do it the way that shochu was made many decades ago which is uh which is something that steven and i really really like um then moving on to the southern islands of kagoshima prefecture we have a couple of products oh i should name the products from Furusao too huh they are called motoko which is a rice shochu masako which is a barley shochu and mahoko which is a sweet potato shochu and those are all named after women in the Furusawa family. Motoko was the third generation toji. Masako is the current and fifth generation toji, and we believe that Mahoko will be the sixth generation toji. But she's in high school right now, so um, she's got some more learning to do. I guess now that I've done about half of the um, portfolio, maybe Stephen, you can talk about Nishihira onwards. Sure.
2: Oh, one one thing. Um, just. Uh, So people at home
0: know, explain what a toji is. Sure. So in the sake industry, the toji is the master brewer. Uh, In the shochu industry, they use the same term, uh, but Christopher and I have taken to calling them master brewer distillers because the fermentation in shochu production is just as important as the distilling process because it's a one shot through the still what you distill is what you get you don't get a second run you don't really oak barrel aging isn't that common uh so really the flavor is going to come from the fermentation so you need to be a master fermentation expert so master brewer in addition to being a master distiller and so when we use toji we're talking about a master brewer distiller Uh, and actually motoko was the first uh female master brewer distiller first female toji uh, in living memory, in Miyazaki Prefecture, and to have a multi-generational female toji family is is nigh unheard of in Japan. It's it's a really unique uh, situation. Now there is another uh, female toji in our portfolio, and that's actually Sarena Nishihira from uh, Amami. The Amami Islands is the only place in Japan you can make kokuto sugar shochu. This is almost like a demerara sugar. It's a very lightly refined, very dark, rich, mineral. Lots of minerals, lots of nutrients in this sugar. It's considered a health food in Japan. Uh, but in the Amami Islands, that's their local drink. They make shochu out of it, and it's not a rum because they use a rice koji starter fermentation. And when I first discovered the style, I took kind of a dim view of it because I'm, I've loved rum for a long time. And I was like, well, what do you need the rice for? It doesn't. It's just a gimmick. Well, it turns out that the rice koji fermentation creates a nutrient-rich environment for the yeast, And so you get a cleaner fermentation, and you get lighter, cleaner notes on a single pot distilled run out of kokuto shochu. So Serena actually makes two expressions in her portfolio. She makes one called celophant, which is a uh, ceramic, uh, sorry, a tank-aged, enameline tank-aged kokuto shochu, 30% alcohol, which is how they normally drink it on the islands. And... It's called Sullivant because that's her nickname. Uh, when she was a kid, she loved elephants, and so her f- her family started calling her Sullivant because uh, Serena and Selena are sort of interchangeable in, in Japanese. And Christopher could give a better pronunciation guide to that. But um, then the other one from the same distillery is Kana, which is a uh, w- it's a barrel aged uh, kokuto shochu. It's actually the same. Uh, distill it as cellophant but rather than being aged in a tank it's aged in wood for a year uh, very light straw color uh, because they're pretty tired casks but it really changes the mouth feel and the complexion of the drink and then uh, back to miyazaki actually right down the road from furusawa is uh, in kushima miyazaki is the shodo distillery and they make a very modern, expressive sweet potato shochu called Colorful, which is a blend of two different distillates, one with, uh, made with white koji, one made with black koji, one with potatoes from a farm. They're actually purple sweet potatoes from a farm in Miyazaki. And the other one is actually the same potato variety, but from a farm in Kagoshima. And that also is bottled at 30%, which is very uncommon for mainland shochu, but that's what the toji thought would be the best expression for that drink. Uh, Traditionally, sweet potato shochu is is kind of this deep, earthy, funky, rich style. Uh, The Japanese have an expression, imokusai, which means stinky potato, as as one of the styles of sweet potato shochu. Colorful is not that. Colorful is bright fruit, a little bit of mandarin orange on the nose. It's a really, really beautiful uh, example of the modern expression. And to our knowledge, it's the first of that style to come to the States. Uh, most of the uh, sweet potato shochu available here is uh, more the traditional style. Should we talk about the other guys? Why not? All right, so we have two other sweet potato shochu. I almost hesitate to mention them because we only got a handful of cases for the entire country. Uh, one is Krio and the other one is Tsurushi. They're basically brothers. Uh, same distillery, uh, estate-grown, hand-harvested sweet potatoes. Uh, Krio is made, uh, after harvest, the sweet potatoes are slow-frozen, so the uh, as the ice crystals form inside the potato, it breaks down the cell walls and releases sugars, much like you would do with an ice wine. Mm-hmm. And in Tsurushi, uh, these these same potatoes, rather than being frozen, they're hung in the rafters of the distillery to dry, uh, and that concentrates the sugar, it dehydrates the potatoes, so you've got Uh, more sugar concentration. And then they're both fermented and distilled in the same process, and they express completely differently. Despite being the same koji, same yeast, same water source, potatoes from the same field, simply how you age the potatoes before fermentation completely changes the character of the drinks. They're fascinating. And we're really excited to be able to bring things like this to the U.S. because these are hard to find in, in Japan. Christopher cannot find Krio and Tsurushi in Tokyo uh so either we're really really fortunate to to have these friends who are making these beautiful drinks that we can we can introduce to american drinks lovers all right so um
2: as we wrap things up uh tell us about some of your favorite ways to consume shochu i mean i know you're you're a big rocks guy right but there are other other methods so give us a little primer on those other popular methods
0: sure I'll, I'll go first so Christopher has a chance to rebut because this is one thing that we uh, don't often agree on <laughs> um I actually I was a rocks drinker for a long time but as I've gotten older I actually like a little more dilution uh with my shochu um and so I now often will consume what I call mizu, or I guess what many people call mizu in the industry which is uh shochu on the rocks, but with a little bit of water added, maybe, maybe 10% water to 90% shochu or 20% water to 80% shochu. And that just softens it a little faster than waiting for the ice to melt. Uh, But the other thing that I really enjoy, especially in the summertime, is uh, shochu soda, essentially as a highball. And there I'll usually do about a 50-50 dilution over ice. Although if it's a higher proof shochu, so something like um, mahoko, the sweet potato shochu from Furusawa, that's 35%. So I will, at that point, probably go down to about 30% shochu, 70% wa- uh, sparkling water. Uh, and that's how I tend to drink my shochu. But Christopher has a diametrically opposed position.
3: <laughs> yeah, highballs are definitely the rage right now. And even in Japan, there's, that's, uh, they're being consumed left, right, and center. So sparkling water or seltzer, whatever you want to call it, is the main way to go in Japan, but I, I think it needs to be expressed to everybody out there that people in Japan tend not to drink shochu neat, uh, despite how we've been tasting everybody on these drinks at the various events that we're doing in the States. Um, professionally, if you were actually doing a tasting, you would taste it neat, but otherwise, it's there's a lot of dilution, and the drinks are made to be diluted to a certain extent. The people who make these drinks believe that everybody's going to at the very least pour them over ice but probably also add a little bit of cool water or old school way the way that I love to drink it it's called wadi. and oyu means hot hot water and wadi means cut or mix so hot water mix and often about 50 50 hot water to especially for me sweet potato shochu and yes I drink it that way in the summer uh, it is absolutely amazing because the hot water does a couple of things. Number one, it allows the, the white pepper, the earthiness, some of the funky notes from the sweet potato shochu to shine through, but then also releases some of the fruitier or sweeter esters to kind of create this bouquet over the top, and it's fantastic. I was just doing a tasting in, in Oakland, California last week, and while we weren't doing... Uh, Oyuwari, per se, we were doing a little bit of dilution on some of the drinks after trying them straight, and the, the buyer at this account made this amazing comment, and he said, I really just feel like this shochu agrees with my, my body. And I think that a lot of preparations of shochu do that, and especially when you, heat, when you add heat. It just becomes so easy for your system to process And you can drink it for days, uh, which is what I tend to do. And I guess just culturally, uh, throughout Asia,
0: uh, drinks tend to be consumed warm. You know, you've got hot tea. Uh, Some people just drink hot water uh, in the winter or other times just when they're not feeling well. And the idea is kind of that cold drinks are kind of a shock to the system, that they're not really that good for your stomach, that they don't really... Uh, sit that well with you and there may be some truth to that maybe as westerners we're just used to to ice in our drinks uh, but there might be something to either room temperature or uh, or hot water dilution uh, not, maybe not just for shochu and aomori but for other other drinks as well I've, I've certainly uh, started cutting my shochu with water alone uh, so that it, I get more of a room temperature it's a little bit more expressive because once you chill something you're gonna you're gonna suppress uh, flavor and aroma uh, that's why we drink uh beers that should not be named ice cold, right? Because they just don't taste that good. And so uh, I think you're going to get even more expression out of your shochu. Maybe you don't go full on hot water. I get warm quickly when I drink hot drinks. I guess I'm warm blooded, but uh, I have started to like either cut the ice, either the amount of ice or not use ice at all when I'm diluting.
1: That's our program for today. Thanks again to Christopher Pellegrini and Stephen Lyman for joining us. Learn more about Honkaku at Honkakuspirits.com. And you can find Christopher and Stephen on Twitter. They're at Chris Pellegrini and at LymanTweets. We'll be back in a few weeks. Until then, thanks for listening and cheers.